0: In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Stephen Reinhart. Steve is a patent attorney and talk show host on Ktalk AM 1640 in Utah. In 2006, Steve interviewed Russ Callum, Richard Tusa, Larry Carr, Nick O'Hara, Johnny Searles, and a few other names you might recognize in a series of interviews on his show about Richard McCoy and DB Cooper. Enjoy this episode with my good friend Steven Reinhardt. Alright, Steve, when was the first time you heard about DB Cooper?
1: You know, I think the first time I heard about DB Cooper was when I attended a restaurant here in Salt Lake City called DB Cooper's. <laughs> I don't know how long it's been since it closed, but it it was probably twenty years ago that uh that I went to that restaurant. It was a great restaurant. How old were you
0: back then? If you I'm forty
1: four now. And so I was in my early twenties, probably at the time. And I've always been fascinated with Utah history. Now DB Cooper has um not on the surface anything to do with Utah history. And yet, because of the second hijacking by Richard Floyd McCoy, there is a connection. And there is interest around the valley in the hijacking for much the same reason that there's such broad interest across the country.
0: So when you sort of started to be real interested in the case, did it take you right down the Richard Floyd McCoy Avenue? You
1: know, I think it did. And shortly after I started becoming familiar with the case and reading about Richard Floyd McCoy. I began hosting a radio program myself. So you and I share common passions. <laughs> and, and that show is on, I still do it. It's on K-Talk AM 1640 here in Salt Lake City, formerly AM 630. And although the show focuses more now on political um, commentary and, and culture and, and events at, it used to focus primarily on historical topics. And so at the time I started hosting this program in 2004, D.B. Cooper was one of the items I wanted to get into. So you had the freedom in that show to sort of
0: decide what you wanted to do.
1: When I first started, they, there was some control and I permissions were needed to have guests and substitutes and these kinds of things. But eventually, within a year, I had almost complete freedom to do the shows I wanted. And I spent a lot of time researching D.B. Cooper and Richard Floyd McCoy, which itself is nothing unique. There are many people like yourself who research those topics. What's unique about me is that because I was a radio host, I had access to some of the characters involved in the investigations of both crimes that other people do not, Some really
0: impressive access.
1: Yes. The radio show bought me, as it probably does you, access to people you wouldn't have access to if you were just an amateur researcher. And as it turns out, many of the shows that I did ended up being the last interviews done by some of the characters involved before they died. And I didn't know that doing, doing the interviews, but I'm happy that I did the interviews. We did what can only be described as a document dump about a month or two ago and released some of those interviews on YouTube. I have several others that have not been um, released on YouTube, and I've been trying to find those over the last 24 or 48 hours. Uh, I have found some of them, and I'm going to send them to you, interviews with some of the people that were involved that I don't think people have heard for the most part, unless you happen to be listening to K-Talk in 2005. That is awesome. They were there. But I'll make them available to you and make sure you get copies of them all within the next day.
0: That would be great. Yeah, I stumbled across you because I'm always just like checking for new things that pop up with DB Cooper in it. And uh, about a month, two months ago, I saw these interviews pop up on YouTube, and I was like,
1: you must have "I have carefully. never
0: heard these." Oh, I, I check all yeah. the time.
1: <laughs> well, I have others that I'll that I'll give you. But yes, they're they're there, and there is information in them that that most amateur researchers are not aware of. And and I, I've spoken with people even outside of the interviews and gathered some information that, that seems important in retrospect.
0: I, I certainly think so. So when you decided to do some D.B. Cooper programs on the show, what was the first thing you wanted to do other than just tell the story of what happened?
1: My interest initially, before I did any of the shows, was the D.B. Cooper hijacking, and then my interest grew um, to the Richard Floyd McCoy hijacking, and then my interest seemed to be kind of a a shared interest with both crimes. They're both related, and I feel like the information that I eventually gathered and presented on the air related more and had more relevance and importance to the Richard Floyd McCoy hijacking and perhaps its relation to the DB Cooper hijacking than it did directly to the DB Cooper hijacking. And, and so most of the important information that I gathered related to, to the McCoy incident.
0: Wait, it's interesting how that plays out. You start with one thing and end up with something else.
1: And you, you end up going in a direction you did not expect. Yes, that's what happened. And it, at the time, I was, it was 15 years ago that I did those interviews. I was 28, 29, 30 years old. And I would impulsively call people who were associated with the McCoy investigation and the D.V. Cooper investigation without much thought for whether they would have interest in speaking with me. For instance, federal judges, <laughs> FBI agents. <laughs> And they quite often did have quite a bit of interest in speaking with me. And quite often gave me information that I did not have. And as you become older, you become more reluctant to speak so impulsively with, with these types of people. Uh, but I it was it was interesting at the time.
0: What was the first interview you did on that program, Steve?
1: Well, I th- I think one of the first ones I did was Richard Callum. And I I still don't know how to say his last name. Kalame, uh-huh. I think it's Callum.
0: Is it is it Richard or Russell?
1: Russell, excuse me, Russell, and and you'll you'll forgive me, I hope, if I have memory lapses. As it's been fifteen years since I did many of those interviews.
0: Oh yeah, and a lot of names to keep track of and dates and stuff. We're very forgiving of that on this show.
1: <sighs> it was it was Russell, and Russell and I spoke on the air. That interview is available now on YouTube. I, mean, I know you've heard it. It's difficult to hear. We don't have a good recording of the interview, but you can make it out if you listen closely. And, um, and we spoke off the air. And so I, I got information from him on the air and off the air about McCoy. And I also spoke on three occasions with Dave Winder, U.S. District Court Judge Dave Winder, who was alive at the time and, like Russell Callum, has now passed away. And he was a sitting U.S. District Court judge in 2005 and a very good judge. Uh, One of the best judges, federal judges, that Utah has seen. And we have many good federal judges here. We also have some that that have not been good. And uh, he spoke with me three times off the air about McCoy. And I even had a brief conversation with his wife about McCoy. And he intended at one point to come on my radio show and do an interview about McCoy. And you may be asking yourself, what what do we care what this U.S. District Court judge in 2005 has to say about Richard Floyd McCoy? He was the federal defender that defended Richard Floyd McCoy in the 70s against the skyjacking charge. So he was an attorney at the time of the hijacking. He defended McCoy and then became a federal judge and uh, adjudicated cases from the same courtroom McCoy had been convicted <laughs> so it, it, he he does have a lot of knowledge about the case. I went on to do interviews with many other individuals involved. Um, I did an interview with Larry Carr recently. Um, I did an interview with um, some that I haven't released um, they're they're I'm trying to think of who they all.
0: You also All interviewed Richard
1: Tussaud. Richard Tussaud. Um, other interviews, let me tell you some of the other ones that I have. Um, and I apologize, I don't have this information right here at my fingertips. Oh, no worries. Um, Other interviews were Dan Dvorak. I haven't put that one up, but I'll make sure you get a copy of it. Um, a few other FBI agents that were involved... Uh Nick O'Hara, you interviewed. Yep, I did interview Nick O'Hara, yes, and I'll get you that interview as well. And he was not involved with the D.B. Cooper case, but he was very involved with the McCoy case. And that and that was an interesting interview, also.
0: Yeah, he has a pretty famous quote. When I uh when I shot McCoy,
1: I shot D.B. Cooper. He he does. He does. And he was very much of that opinion. And as you try to evaluate the opinions of the FBI agents and the investigators that were involved in McCoy and the Cooper hijacking you see that there's this huge diversity of opinion among them and i think that that's interesting i think that it's interesting that there are FBI agents on the who investigated the DB Cooper case who believe McCoy was Cooper and other agents also investigating the same case side by side who believe he was not. And then you have the same thing with McCoy. You have FBI agents working on McCoy's case who do not believe he was DB Cooper and others that believe he was. And you have to ask yourself, how could this difference of opinion, this divergence of people who all have the same information be so great? And it's a question that I've struggled with for a long time. And, And I have some thoughts on it that I can share with you, but I want to make sure that I don't, Take your show off in a direction you don't want to go. And so I want to answer the questions you have for me. No, I'm here to listen to what you have to say, Steve. Well, in speaking with different people about D.B. Cooper and McCoy, you find that people, amateur researchers, are very detail oriented, as are FBI agents. And so they will take a position that they think is supported by the hard evidence. And most crimes are solved that way. The FBI solves 99% of crimes that they investigate or 95% by looking and, and making logical, deductive conclusions uh, about the evidence. And yet the McCoy or, in the, well, the D.B. Cooper case has never been solved. And to, despite all this analysis, it, it has not been solved. I, it's worth pointing out that the McCoy case also would not have been solved by the FBI if his own acquaintances hadn't turned him in. So so the FBI found themselves unable to resolve either the Cooper case or the McCoy case. And these crimes are so audacious. Uh, You have to ask yourself, how could the premier law enforcement agency not be able to solve them? And in my opinion, it is because there are fundamental conclusions about the case, about the D.B. Cooper case, which are in error. And that probably those conclusions have been made as a result of groupthink, which is a psychological yes. phenomenon that's, that's very common among military uh, personnel and law enforcement. And, and so there's, a, there's some abstraction that's worth thinking about in approaching the case. And let me explain. Let me, let me give you some examples, first of all. There's a I live here in Salt Lake City, and there's many famous crimes that have happened in Salt Lake City. One of them that reached the national news was the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping. And so what happened is a homeless guy made friends with this family where Elizabeth Smart lived, a wealthy family, and uh, and kidnapped her. Broke in through the window, took her. Her sister, Elizabeth Smart's sister, saw it. The police were unable to solve this crime, which should have been very straightforward because they developed preconceived notions about what had happened that were wrong. For instance, they decided that the culprit must have been another homeless guy named Richard Reese, who they arrested for having beer in his refrigerator in violation of his parole and then interrogated him for five days till he died of a brain aneurysm.
0: Ooh, and that's then,
1: a drag. I know. And then they concluded that the case was over and that the suspect, the primary suspect, was dead. Even though the sister of Elizabeth Smart was pointing out the actual suspect, Brian David Mitchell, in photographs, the FBI, which was also investigating, concluded that Elizabeth Smart's father was the culprit. In fact, that he was nearly charged. They went through his computer, they found I, I mean, I'm told, you know, pornography, I, I, not that they've ever said that. Some things that made them suspect that he had some sort of, you know, sexual skeletons in the closet. And and neither the Salt Lake City Police Department or the FBI could see beyond these preconceived notions that they have. And you see this everywhere in military history and law enforcement. I don't... And and I know that you study this case in particular, but there are many other cases where it's happened. One, One would be another good example, and I'm just speaking extemporaneously here, would be the FBI trader, mole, Robert Hansen. In the 80s and 90s, he's selling all the U.S. secrets to Russia. The CIA forms a task force to try and find this mole that they know is out there. And they conclude... That the mole is a CIA agent named Brian Kelly, and they are so fixated on this particular suspect that they lose the ability to evaluate other suspects in the case, and, and then Robert Hansen gets away with it for another 10 or 15 years. Well, I think that on some level, that same kind of thing is happening both to the FBI and amateur researchers in the DB Cooper case. How well, so? Well, the the FBI agent that was in charge of the DB Cooper investigation was Himmelsbach. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Ralph Himmelsbach. Sounds right to me. And <clears throat> he did not believe that McCoy was Cooper. And he was a smart, competent agent as almost all FBI agents are. But but therein lies the issue. Being smart and competent and having some measure of power, as law enforcement and judges, perhaps even attorneys do, leads to pride. And it's possible, even some of the agents who worked for him, believed that he had predetermined ideas, conclusions in his mind about what the D.B. Cooper suspect looked like that may just have been wrong and even what happened that may have been wrong. and I don't have all the evidence that the FBI has, but there, there are fundamental beliefs that they have about the case that could be an error. And and I'll just I'll just throw out some things. I and 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 I do not believe that necessarily that these conclusions are an error, but they're nonetheless conclusions that have been made. They believe Cooper jumped out of the plane. There's at least one FBI agent I know who's not entirely sure he actually did. <laughs> really? Do you remember that guy's name? I I I need to find I need to find it. I'll send it over to you. And and he he thinks he did, but nobody ever really checked the plane as well as they should have possibly to see if he actually. Had, there, there's not actually any eyewitnesses, and and and, and so the, I I think he did jump out of the plane. I mean I'm 99 sure that he did but it's, it's an example of a conclusion that, that might explain why progress has never been made on the case that people just took for granted. Um, the search area could be wrong. The money that was found in the Columbia River could have gotten there through, through some unexpected means. And you need people investigating these cases who are open, particularly after a case becomes cold to the possibility that fundamental conclusions in the case are wrong. Now, the FBI has evidence about the DV Cooper case that they've never shared. And they believe it would be a mistake to share it because they think that this evidence eventually will identify the culprit. They probably, the FBI probably has fingerprints from Cooper. They may have a partial DNA profile of Cooper taken either from cigarette butts or from, from other things on the plane. And Himmelsbach presumes that these fingerprints, and it, although DNA was before his time, it, you know, later, that, that DNA that, from these cigarette butts or from other things identify Cooper. But it's not entirely clear that they have the right fingerprints or even the right DNA sample. And so that's another example of something that, that the FBI uses or, or concludes disqualifies McCoy from being Cooper. It may be fund- it may be a conclusion that's
0: fundamentally an error. Oh, hundred percent. When you, especially when you talk about the DNA, how do you know that DNA belongs to Cooper?
1: Right. I mean, twenty years after the fact, or even thirty years, they go back and and try and gather DNA from evidence they have in their file, and they're not sure whose DNA it is. But then they presume it's Cooper's, and so. I don't know everything that they have, but I've developed this suspicion over time that there are some fundamental conclusions that have been made there. Himmelsbach was a prideful guy. He was difficult to get along with. He, there are many examples of, of cases where he put his foot down and, and demanded that things be interpreted in a, in a particular way that later turned out to be wrong. And, and so, you know, I can't solve the case but I can only say that after interviewing all the people that I spoke with, that, that I'm left with the, that impression. And I, and I am left with the impression that there is a possibility, a strong possibility that McCoy was Cooper, just based on the, the people that I've spoken with. And, and it, it's not a, it's, it's not the funnest avenue to go down because it means that the suspect is dead. It means that the case is over. And, and yet I think it's a possibility that needs to be taken more seriously by those researching the case than it, than it is most discount that possibility.
0: Well, I've listened to a handful of your interviews and I thought it was interesting mm-hmm. with, with Tucson and like you, I don't know how, if it's Calame or Callum. I but,
1: think it's Callum, yeah.
0: Uh, they were both convinced it's, it's McCoy, it's McCoy. And then, you know, you had Johnny Surley on your show. I just had him on mine as well. And he is, he said, I'm 100% certain, you know, McCoy was Cooper. And then you have Larry Carr on your show. And Larry Carr just says, look, it's not McCoy. We, we checked that. We showed his picture to the stewardesses. They said it wasn't him. And then, I, you know, to quote McCoy, he said, I don't know what more evidence you need that it's not McCoy.
1: And you're right. Larry Carr did say that agent Carr and other agents in the Seattle field office think the same thing, and I I worry that they're that they are doing what Himmelsbach did, which is they're basing that conclusion on evidence that may not be as conclusive as they believe it is, fingerprints and DNA, and and so, but yes, you're right, and and it just goes to show the difference of opinion that exists out there. Russell Callum worked on the on the McCoy case, and, and he's very familiar with the FBI agents that worked on the D. V. Cooper case. Nick O'Hara uh, also believes that McCoy was Cooper. And, you know, it's possible even that McCoy's attorney believed he was Cooper. And so, so you have this nebulous body of evidence, <laughs> and, the, and, and you're doing a great job collecting all of this evidence. That I think is eventually going to be needed to solve the case, which, which I hope is solved conclusively at some point, but I don't know if it will be. But you do hope it is solved. I hope so. I, I think the, the most likely way that it that it will be solved is if whoever is responsible for the Cooper hijacking comes forward either in life or leaves something after they die establishing that they they were guilty of the crime. I do think Cooper survived. And another conclusion that the FBI seems to stick to, although they don't take this for granted, it's true that, that they're not, that this isn't a foregone conclusion in their opinion, is they, they think Cooper died, probably. I think it's it's most likely he lived. I, even if you look at the missing person reports, you, you would expect there to be a missing person report for somebody with you know who profiled for Cooper, and there's really not, which indicates to me that Cooper came back to wherever he was from.
0: I agree. I, if I can interrupt you for a second, mm-hmm. I think the only reason the FBI is saying they believe he died in the jump is it's less embarrassing than saying, we can't find him, he got away.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. And, and they also couldn't find McCoy uh, until he was turned in by others. And, and you just wonder how that can be. How can they not? I mean, how can someone hijack a plane? Jump out of the plane and and the FBI be unable to find the hijacker two times in a row. Uh and yet it did. It it seems to have happened. And 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 particularly with Cooper, it did. And so it it's a mystery, and, and this is the reason that millions of hours are being spent by people 40 years after the fact. I mean, more than you know, decades after the fact. Almost 50. Yeah, almost 50, continuing to research this. And there are people out there who have some knowledge that they're not sharing, and, and that's unfortunate. And some of those people are starting to die. I and mean, it's unfortunate that there, that there are people who have knowledge that they, they're not sharing. There, there are FBI agents who know things that they won't, they won't discuss. Um, McCoy's attorney knew things he won't discuss. McCoy's uh, attorney probably knew quite
0: a bit as well as uh, – is, is that the same attorney that Karen sued?
1: No. No, that was Karen's attorney. No, she sued an attorney who had represented her named Taylor. His last name was Taylor. I don't remember his first name. But what happened there is, so McCoy gets arrested for the second hijacking. He's got the money. He's, he's, He's guilty of the second hijacking. It's clear. There's no doubt about it. How the FBI found out he was guilty of the second hijacking is something that is still a matter of dispute. Uh, McCoy's friends and possibly his own family members, possibly his wife, turned him in. And he's assigned a public defender to represent him named David Winter, who at the time was a young attorney, Stanford law grad, very well qualified, and who does it as good a job as anybody can defending McCoy, who is unfortunately obviously guilty. And so it's difficult to defend. It's a tough
0: spot to defend that dude there.
1: And yet he tries. For instance, there are some irregularities with the case. Uh, The the police are not being entirely truthful about how they've discovered McCoy was guilty of the hijacking, for instance. They're also, um, they played games with the search warrant that they got to search his house. Somebody signed the search warrant. He didn't really sign the search warrant. And some of the signatures are off. And so Dave Winder files a motion to quash this evidence on the basis of these irregularities with the search warrant. And he gets to know McCoy personally. But attorneys are bound by attorney-client privilege. and. Dave Winder is far too good of an attorney. He's far too principled of a person to ever betray that privilege very much, um, even if he wants to. And so he goes on to become a judge. And McCoy goes to prison for forty-five years, and then is killed after by the FBI after escaping from prison. There, there are some issues. That are worth talking about there, and then and then also what how Dave Wonder felt about it later in his life. But McCoy is an honorable guy. Richard, Richard Floyd McCoy is an honorable guy, despite the fact he hijacked a plane. And let me explain. He he was a Vietnam vet, he got a purple heart, he saved his platoon, he's a helicopter pilot, from being killed in Vietnam. And he was trained to Enter combat to fight for the things he believed in. Um, and he went up against a judge here in Salt Lake City in very difficult circumstances. And and it's a it was Judge Will, uh, Willis Ritter, who at the time in the 70s was the only U.S. District Court judge, the only federal judge in the state of Utah. And as an attorney you have to be very careful what you say about sitting federal judges. You have more latitude with judges who've been dead for decades as judge Ritter has been, but it's, it's, it, it's a sad irony. I, 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 I don't know if that's the right word, but that attorneys who are the only people qualified or the people best qualified to judge a judge are censored in a sense The the rules of professional conduct prevent them from saying anything too negative about a federal judge.
0: I did not know that.
1: That, Yes. Yes. I could even tell you it's, I think it's rule 8.2 of the, that, that uh, you cannot uh, bad talk a judge. Well, what about a former judge? Um, Well, what the rule actually says is that you can't say something with reckless disregard for its falsity. And so you have to be very careful discussing Judge Ritter. And Judge Ritter is notorious, however. Um, There is a belief that he sentenced people very unfairly on the basis of their religion. And that he went very hard on defendants who were Mormon, LDS, and very lenient on those who were not. It's pretty uh,
0: interesting for a Utah judge.
1: I know. Well, you know, and you presume, being from outside Utah, that probably the judges are biased in favor of the the prominent demographic. And yet, there's a culture war in Salt Lake City. You've got conservative Mormons that are pitted against liberal, you know, a, a pot, you know, the liberal populace out of Staters. Salt Lake City is about 50% LDS, 50% oh. not
0: but it wasn't that way in 72
1: you're right you're right but even going back to the time utah was founded in the 1850s when there were magistrates being appointed over the utah territory there was a, there was conflict and judge ritter was very much part of that conflict and he i i mean the allegations about him uh, and and i say this feeling like I'm being constrained, but they're, they're they're enormous. I mean, there there's numerous allegations that he drank during his time on duty at the courthouse, that he sent his clerks to buy alcohol for him. There are allegations that he was frequently patroned brothels in Ogden. I mean, uh, the the allegations go on and on and on. And I, I say that they're allegations only because I don't know the truth uh, or falsity of the allegations, only that the allegations exist, and are are quite uh, believed. The, on the record, he did, you know, in did say things that would be considered highly appropriate under today's standards. Um, he joked about the LDS Church being the same as LSD, um, and and he, I mean, other comments to that effect. And there's an allegation that's been made that the reason that Richard Floyd McCoy got a 45-year sentence for skyjacking, where nobody was hurt or killed, and he didn't have real weapons on the plane, was that because Ritter was biased against him for having joined the Mormon church, McCoy was a convert to Mormonism from North Carolina and he was a BYU student. He taught Sunday school. He, he was a very active participant in his faith. And so you try to reconcile this with the fact that he skyjacked a plane. I don't know if you really can reconcile. it, But, but also a decorated war veteran. It, and, and yes, and, and it's disturbing because he, he behaved so honorably in Vietnam. And then, in fact, that record was used against him in sentencing. And so where you would think that a U.S. district court judge would give somebody some leeway, perhaps for having PTSD, for having served their country so honorably, in fact, they I, they use his combat experience and the fact he's been trained as an aggravating factor to, to justify this decision that he's a danger to society and give him the maximum sentence of 45 years. And the defense was arguing for 10 or 15 and he, he gets this, the maximum sentence. And it, it's important to remember that there is not parole in federal uh, prisons. And, you know, here in the state of Utah, if you get a, whatever sentence you get in state prison, you'll serve 60% of it. You'll be out in California. You'll serve 50. If that, in federal prison, you serve the whole thing. There's not parole. And so he's looking at going to jail for the rest of his life. After he had been in jail for a year, there was a motion which were common at the time to have his sentence reduced to 25 years. And supposedly, I mean, I, I have secondhand accounts here, third hand accounts, that uh, you know, that he made very difficult comments to people. I think even Bernie Rhodes, who wrote, you know, one of the books out here about McCoy, potentially that you know, Mormons, things to the effect, and I just have these third hand, you know, or second hand that, you know, he's going to teach Mormon Sunday school teachers not to hijack planes or or things like this, highly inappropriate comments. And so I can't tell you that those comments are true. I didn't hear them, but I can tell you that the allegations he made those comments have been made. And so I, as an attorney, and I try not to be prejudiced, even though we all have our, our biases. I hear these, and I, I develop a, a sense of sympathy for McCoy. Um, and, then, and then you read some of the books out there about him, and, and there's reason to believe that he was pressured into, this, into the hijacking, or possibly into both hijackings if you think he's guilty of both of them. And that maybe even that he pled guilty to protect his family to some extent, who may have shared ultimate guilt for his crimes. And, and so I struggle as a person with this. And I, I think that McCoy is just one of thousands of examples of this happening. Um, his family was being threatened, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, of uh, almost a tragedy. And, 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 of course, prisons are very sad places. There are people in there doing hard time who, who, who made mistakes, who wouldn't have made those mistakes if they could do it over in many cases, were treated unfairly and punished very harshly. Um, And I think that McCoy is an example of that. I even developed such a sense of sympathy for him that me and a former law professor tried to start writing a bill, which we we proposed to call the McCoy Act, that would mandate a downward departure in the federal sentencing guidelines for prisoners who had honorable military service. They would force judges to give convicts who had served their country honorably some leeway in uh, in sentencing as a result of that. And so I I hope I'm not dwelling on this uh, too much. Of course, this doesn't help anybody solve the DB Cooper hijacking. But no, it's I'm not-
0: enjoying this thoroughly, Steve.
1: Are you okay? <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You're the kind words. You're making me feel good about myself. And I did interview many of the FBI agents. And talked to Dave Winder about the McCoy hijacking. And, you know, we have all this, this rioting and, and this political upheaval right now in 2020 that we did not have in 2005, even though I predicted it was coming. And, and we have this because of, it, it to some extent, because of police brutality, unchecked police accountability uh, over many decades. And and I feel like you see shadows of that in the McCoy case. I, I did interview Nick O'Hara, who I think is an honorable guy, and I appreciate him coming on my show. He's the FBI agent who killed McCoy. He described in that interview the killing. And it's difficult to avoid the impression in hearing it that him and the other two FBI agents just were laying in wait in McCoy's house and, and basically assassinated him as soon as he came through the door. And and so it it's also out of regard for McCoy's family that I did not post that interview on YouTube or anywhere else right away. And I have it and I'll get you I'll get you a copy of it because I, I think it's important. And and so I you know, I, I know that he's an honorable guy. I know that there are times where violence is called for it and that law enforcement and the FBI have to have to protect themselves. But I, I mean, not just the, the, the McCoy case, but I mean, other cases in the surrounding area where I live that are infamous are just replete with examples of FBI overreach. I mean, you look at Ruby Ridge, the, the sniper shoots the suspect's wife and baby, just on and on. Not, never any accountability for that sniper. And, and so, um, so it's difficult. It, it, you know, it's a difficult road to go down. Um, when when I spoke with Dave Winder, who's now passed on, he expressed some of these same sentiments about McCoy. He liked him. He felt bad about what had happened to him. Wished he could have helped him. And I wrote Judge Winder a letter with a list of the questions I wanted to ask him when he came on my show, including whether he would have granted or denied his own motion to suppress evidence that he filed in the McCoy case, because here he is now the judge deciding cases in the same courtroom that McCoy's in. And uh, he felt, I spoke with him on the phone after sending him the letter, and he felt, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm bragging about myself, that (laughs) the questions I had sent him were enormously insightful, but that he would be brief breaching attorney client privilege 40 years later you know now going on 50 years later if he answered them and he expressed this this feeling that he would like to answer them but just couldn't and he and he's far too honorable of a guy to do what he wants when the rules of professional conduct attorneys tell me can't and so he's now passed on um Johnny Surlis has called me and and others have called me asking me periodically about a conversation I had with Dave Winder's wife. Dave Winder trusted me enough or was kind enough to actually give me his home telephone number. And so I spoke with him, a federal judge at his house, and had a brief conversation with his wife about the case. And she did not refute or confirm that McCoy was Cooper, even though it's possible Dave Winder knew the answer to that question. But did confirm that she was aware that the question existed, and that she seemed to know the answer. But I don't know. I, I don't know what that means. You know, I, that doesn't mean that she confirmed anything,
0: right? But it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, but it, but you can infer that the fact she's aware of the controversy, and and has something to say about it, it, it you wonder if that means she knows something. Or, or, or if that knowledge came to her through her husband, you just don't know. You just don't know. And so I can't, even though people want me to, they want me to tell them that Dave Winter's wife confirmed that Floyd is McCooper. She did not. And there, there may be some inferences you can may, make about that. Um, but, but that's you know that's just an example of telephone conversations I had with people that were involved.
0: After all of your research, were you more confident that McCoy was Cooper or less confident?
1: I think there is a 40 to 45% chance that McCoy was Cooper. And that's where I come down. And you, you say, well, that means that you think that it's more likely than not that he wasn't Cooper, which is probably true. However, the chance of any of the other suspects being Cooper who've been identified is 1%, in my opinion. and. And so I think that McCoy is far and away the most likely, currently, current solution to the entire enigma. Um, So, so he's the most probable of the solutions that we have before us. And yet, I also think that it's quite possible that the correct solution has not yet come to light, and and that an amateur researcher may solve the problem or, or get far enough along in the logic that it can be solved by others, like the FBI, but um, that it's most likely to ultimately be solved with the death of whoever was responsible for the Cooper hijacking, which I assume you'll have in the next 10 or 15 years. And so that, that's as close as I can come to quantifying the probabilities as I see them after my own research. And and after some discussions with with some of these individuals who've who've now passed on. And, you know, I say that in speaking with you, recognizing that you're deeply involved in this research and your conclusions about what's gone on are maybe better than my own, probably are, as as are many others. And you may even know, as I'm sitting here rattling off this information, that that some of what I'm telling you is juvenile or uninformed. I'm trying to give you the, the most informed information I I have, but that—that's what I would say. I concluded after speaking with all these people, and I, and I talked to many authors. I'll get you the information I have who wrote books about suspects in the DB Cooper case. Who I, I just—I just thought that their research was shoddy and that their conclusions about different suspects were far from from having much credibility. And and you you probably know that too. That there are so many suspects out there, many of whom. It can just be quickly eliminated. There's some wild
0: suspects out there. Yeah,
1: yeah, there are. So, ask me the, what questions you have for me. Is there is there information you would like from me that I can give you? I can give you the letter I sent Dave Winder, his response. I can, I'm going to send you some things after this interview that I hope are helpful to you. But what what else would you like to to understand from me, or? To-
0: well, more than anything, I want to understand from you is is just your thoughts on your work as far as McCoy goes. What's the one thing in your mind that tells you he did it? And what's the one thing in your mind that says it wasn't him?
1: Well, his cellmate, Melvin Walker, seems to think that McCoy did it. And he died in 1997, I think. I couldn't couldn't interview him. Russell Callum and some of the other FBI agents seem to think he did it. McCoy's own attorney seems to have at least... Not flat out denied, uh, and maybe that's just because he's, he's such a good attorney that he wouldn't even provide information from which inferences could be made, but at least to seem open to the possibility that, that McCoy had done it. And I think that the, the evidence that's been used to eliminate McCoy uh, may not be entirely reliable. And it includes that, um, the fact that they don't think McCoy was in Seattle on the day of the Cooper hijacking. The FBI may not think that his DNA or fingerprints match. But therein may be the red herring. That Those conclusions may be based on evidence that is wrong. Russell Callum believed McCoy was in Vegas the day before the hijacking and, and, and took a flight to Seattle. That's what he thinks.
0: Well, there seems to be evidence to support that.
1: Yeah, he does. He does have some evidence to support that. And some of the FBI agents, other FBI agents also believed him. And And so the question is twofold. It's what evidence is there that McCoy was Cooper, but also has the evidence that he wasn't Cooper been properly identified or analyzed? And I, I think there are problems with the latter of those two suppositions.
0: Well, as far as I'm aware that if we dismiss fingerprints and or DNA, uh, really the only evidence against him is he's twenty eight years old. Uh, I believe is he had blue eyes. Is that right?
1: Yes. And I then
0: so. um, he has, he has ears that stick out. Yeah. So just the physical description doesn't match.
1: You know, and 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 so you're you've identified additional evidence that would disqualify McCoy as Cooper, and. And you're right, that there are some problems with that. Um, and, and and so it's for all those reasons that I say there's only a 40%, 45% chance that he was. Um, that uh, There are other things that the FBI may have that they're not talking about. Um, and Callum alluded to him, I think, in my interview with him and in, in my conversations with him, including, I, I think... And I'm trying to remember that there was a tie clip that they believed that had been left on the the plane in the Cooper hijacking that they believed had been sold at the BYU bookstore.
0: Yes, and and I believe uh, McCoy's mother-in-law or something identified it as belonging to him.
1: Right, right. And so you have a situation where there is some physical evidence that that possibly ties McCoy to the Cooper hijacking, but then you have descriptions from the stewardesses which seemed to disqualify him and and some of these other things. And yet, yet everybody, every possible Cooper subject uh, suspect has been disqualified. And so somewhere in the analysis, you've got a mistake. Well,
0: the only Cooper suspects known to have done the same thing would be McCoy and then Frederick Hanneman. So it's not like Hmm. McCoy couldn't pull off the hijacking because he did the exact same thing
1: Mm -hmm.
0: a few months later.
1: Yes. Let me ask
0: you about this, Steve. There Mm -hmm. are two schools of thought when it comes to McCoy's skyjacking, Mm -hmm. the, the April of 72 skyjacking. It's that it was a copycat of Cooper performed not as well, perhaps even sloppy, and then the yeah, other one is...
1: View and, the, and the view of, of most of the currently living FBI agents, yes.
0: But, but then the other view is he improved upon the mistakes he made in the first skyjacking. And I, I always hear people in one of those two camps, but I, I really believe it's both. It's both camps. It's a copycat where he improved and was sloppy about a few things. But was that complacency?
1: Yes. And, and and I don't know how to reconcile those two points of view. I think there's more research that needs to be done on McCoy's family. He was under pressure to commit the second hijacking. Was he also under pressure before the first hijacking to come up with money quickly? Uh, was, so was there pressure on him in both instances? And, and people haven't looked at that very carefully. And part of the reason that they haven't looked at it is because of the litigiousness of McCoy's family. Um, When Russell Callum and Bernie Rhodes came out with this uh, this book, they got sued. Not for libel, but because some of the information in the book had come from Karen McCoy's former attorney. And so there was an allegation that information in the book breached attorney-client privilege. So you have attorney-client privilege problems all over with both of these cases, and or at least with the, I guess, with the McCoy case, and and so it prevents some of the evidence that that might be relevant to to McCoy's mindset from really coming out. And some of the allegations made in this book, the real McCoy, are very salacious, and and so that book floats around out there.
0: Yeah, it doesn't paint a very flattering picture of Karen.
1: You're right. <laughs> And I've never spoken with her. I don't know who, she, who, she, anything about her. I think she was working at a post office here in Salt Lake City until, possibly, she retired. People told me her kids are back in North Carolina, but I don't, I don't know that that's actually the case. Um, but you're right. I and mean, there are allegations that she was romantically involved with the FBI agents that killed McCoy. I, I um. And I need to go back and, and look at that and make sure that I'm stating that correctly.
0: I I haven't read the book cover to cover in in probably like 18 months, but that sounds correct to me. Like there was some, they insinuated that that could have been going on.
1: Yeah, there were these different kinds of in, insinuations. And it's worth noting, I think that, that some of these allegations, even in court, the court case was dropped to prevent the investigation of some of these allegations. And so um, that may be an area of research that has not been done extremely well. It may be an area of research that's very difficult to do, but it's out there. Have you heard the name Larry Patterson? It does not sound familiar to me. And it's possible I've, forg- I've forgotten the names of some of the individuals whose names I should remember. Tell me who he is. What, what is it about him?
0: I checked out this book, uh, Happy Valley, Murder, Mafia, Mormons, and More by Philip and Cheryl Nagel. Nagle, I hope I'm saying their last name right. Oh, okay. But in Nothing. that book, it theorized that Larry Patterson, who was involved with the, I want to say the state patrol in Utah. Okay. But he basically planned and executed the first skyjacking and then taught... Richard how to do it. He does the second oh, that's one. that's right. He
1: was he was in the National Guard with with McCoy, wasn't he?
0: I believe so, yeah. And yeah, then I think I do the had a little has a small airport and drop zone
1: mm-hmm. in
0: uh, not Happy Valley. Maybe it was Cedar City? I can't remember off the top mm-hmm. of my head.
1: Well, I have heard that. Now that you mention that I have heard that allegation made and and I haven't gone down that road enough to know anything about that. You know, it, it's a case often of first impressions where there's so much information you can't analyze it all. And my, my initial impression would be that that I'd be suspicious of that narrative. Um, But there may be, there may be some truth to it. I mean, there were members of the Utah national guard who worked with McCoy that, that knew he was planning on doing this. And, and so that much is true. Um, And, and so I don't know how deep that rabbit hole goes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I asked Johnny, Johnny Searles about it, and he said that it was BS because Richard is a leader and he's not gonna f- be a follower of anyone else.
1: Uh-huh. Well, that that may be true. And I as an attorney, and I'm an attorney, you have to be so careful about what you say about things. Right. Whereas right.
0: I'm just a guy who speculates
1: nonstop. Uh, so you're you're more liberty, and yeah. So you find yourself as an attorney so restrained that you that you're you're often just just second guessing everything that you say. But I I think that's true about about Richard. And I am a member of the predominant faith here in the uh, the state of Utah, and I'm a true believer.
0: I grew up LDS as well.
1: That's right. You mentioned that to me, and and so I'm reluctant to say anything critical or negative uh, about the culture. Um, I believe it's a good culture, and I I believe that Mormonism engenders perhaps a sense of fearlessness or boldness in people that that is somewhat difficult to entirely explain and somewhat unique to Mormonism. And whether I'm even right about that, I don't know. But Utah has had a number of crimes that stand out. I I I don't you know, you've got white collar criminals like John Galanis who've been here, the SEC has only eleven offices in the whole country. One of them is in Salt Lake. Ted Bundy was arrested here. I I I mean there are a number of these kinds of things. And you have Mark Hoffman, which is a a case that I cannot believe there have not been movies made about. Me neither. Yeah. I mean, he's the greatest forger in the history of, I mean, he forged the letter of the free men sold it for a million and a half dollars in the eighties to the library of Congress. He forged Americana, Mormon memorabilia. And so there, there are these kind of oddball crimes that sometimes come out of the the culture here. And I and, and I worry that even by discussing them, you denigrate the culture. And and it is a great place to be. I mean, very low crime, very good people. And and so you take the risk of trying to stigmatize or stereotype people by pointing out the anomalies. But there are some anomalies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you know I mention that only because McCoy is is one of those. And, and he, he's an honorable guy. He, he's an honorable guy. Uh, and he didn't deserve what happened to him. And, you know, and, and it's possible that D.V. Cooper is another anomaly. Of, you know, if, if you believe that McCoy was Cooper, I, I, I mean, I, being an attorney and doing the things I do, I know FBI agents. I know an FBI agent, and I don't know if this is true, because I don't know anything about this crime, who says that the Zodiac Killer was wearing boots from hill air force base here in utah and and so anyway i you just wonder about those things or sometimes i want you wonder about that aspect of it.
0: what brought uh, mccoy to mormonism
1: well he joined the mormon church in the 60s at a time when the growth of the mormon church was unexplainably huge i have a Article from The Enzyme, which is a magazine published by the Mormon Church from 1990, that predicts that based on growth rates in 1990, the Mormon Church will have 350 million members, be half the size of the Catholic Church by 2020. It's not, because even though at the time the growth rates were that high, uh, the growth rates have slowed significantly, as they have for all religion. But beginning in the 1930s, all the way until about the 1970s, there were huge numbers of very honorable families, very, I mean, entire families straight up, and and individuals that were single, including many individuals in their teens across the country, perhaps particularly in the Midwest, who just suddenly joined the Mormon church. And not because there was any social pressure to do it. In fact, the exact opposite. They were quite often punished and ostracized by their communities for doing it. And you could do a whole show about why that happened, and nobody really knows. But it it happened in droves. And much of the conservatism that you have in the Mormon church, much of the fundamental strength is derived from these very solid individuals who suddenly joined the Mormon church in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And their descendants are now leaders in the Mormon church, to, to some extent, McCoy was one of them. My own father was one of them. He joined the church when he was 14 in Ohio in the n- 1960s and suffered every kind of personal problem as a result. And, and, and he did it out of complete conviction uh, that it was true and that the values and the culture were what he wanted to be a part of in his life. And I, I can only say that I, I presume that McCoy did the same. And, um, and, and so I, I don't know why that happened for a period of so many decades and then slowed. It has slowed. Uh, and, and, and so I, I guess I can only speculate about that, but just to say that it was part of a larger overall trend.
0: All right. Well, here's my next question. Let's assume McCoy is Cooper. He's a Sunday school teacher. He's studying law enforcement at BYU flying a helicopter for the national guard Mm -hmm. all around good dude yes why do the first skyjacking
1: i yeah the only explanation that i have is one that he'd been trained in in such extreme environments to to fly helicopters in vietnam and combat that either it didn't seem like an operation that was audacious to him as it would to a normal person Oh, and, and possibly that he had some sort of PTSD. And then the only other explanation that that I would have is that he was under financial pressure and f- pressure from his family to maintain some sort of lifestyle or, or, or have money in some way that got to him, or maybe it's a combination of all those things. And, and that's the only explanation I have. Of course, I've never spoken with him. I don't know him personally. I, I only know what I've read. Those who knew him personally probably have much better information than I do and might know that what I just said is completely false. Or they might know that it's accurate. But those those are the the things I'm led to wonder about in evaluating him 50 years after the fact. Do you think there was pressure from his wife? Yes, I do.
0: Why do you think that?
1: Mainly because of what I was told by FBI agents like Russell Callum and the allegations in the real McCoy, the book, those would be the main reasons. But also because of things that Nick O'Hara said and, and some of the others, I, I do think that she was involved, and that he wanted to protect his family, and you know, in handling the case. I, uh, it, it's common, I hate to say, for. U.S. attorneys and assistant U.S. attorneys to threaten family members of suspects, and for the suspects to plead guilty when they're being overcharged. And McCoy wasn't being overcharged, but but when they're being threatened uh, to protect their family, it's it, it's an unfortunate uh, kind of mafia tactic that's very common on on the part of prosecutors. And I don't, I I am someone who is very, uh, inclined to conservative political views. And yet I still remain suspicious, uh, of law enforcement and prosecutors and, uh, even am sympathetic to the ACLU in some ways because of my belief that attorneys, and unfortunately, even judges so often overstep their authority, uh, and so that's probably a, lar- a, a longer answer than you want. You may not have even wanted me to go there, but those are just the thoughts that pop into my head as we have this discussion.
0: Assuming McC- Again, assuming McCoy is Cooper, why mm-hmm. the second skyjacking?
1: The, the predominant thinking is because he lost the money in the first, which would explain the, the, how the money got in the Columbia River there. He dropped it. It fell off the tether it was on. He was frustrated that he, he somehow had, had not gotten his hands on it. And so that perhaps he committed the second hijacking just to, to fix this enormous disappointment with the first. Um, but maybe the, he
0: got yeah. away with some of that money because of that trip to North Carolina.
1: Yes, although the FBI says none of the bills have ever turned up. And and that may be another example of a conclusion that, that may just be fundamentally an error. They may not have had the ability to even tell if they turned up. Uh, well, they, they... I just
0: spoke to a uh, a professional numismatist who is a- uh, Oh, a is coin... there right? Yeah. And um, this dude told me that there's no way that that amount of bills would enter circulation and a single one of them wouldn't be flagged throughout the life cycle of the bill. Because he said there's so many cash transactions that get flagged, if any of those or if you know, ninety five hundred bills went into circulation. The idea that none of them would be found in some sort of uh, cash transaction where the bills were looked at, he said, it was just seemed impossible to him.
1: And, and he probably knows that's probably true. And, and, and so I assume that that's true, which means the money was lost or Cooper died. And and so with all of these things, the, these. You, you, we draw conclusions. You know, the fact that the money never turned up, we draw the conclusion that Cooper died or that the money was lost. And yet somewhere along the way, there is a major conclusion being made, which is an error. And, and so I don't know if that's it or not, but I, it, it, it is true. None of the bills ever showed up, and we need an explanation for that. And so, I mean, it sounds like you've done your research. You've interviewed, uh, you've gathered all kinds of information. <laughs> you know, that I, I never gathered. And I think it's important because you're, you're, you're providing a, a staging area. you know a place where this information is available to people.
0: Yeah. I mean, my goal isn't really necessarily to solve the case. I just want to have all these stories in one place for everyone.
1: Right. Right. I think that's important. And, and it sounds like you have all kinds of researchers who are making use of your information, which I, I think is great and also important. What, I uh, I mean, tell me, and I hate to reverse the interview on you, but tell me about your own suspicions about the case. What do you think of McCoy and what do you think happened?
0: I, I really, I really don't know. I think it's one of those things where the more you look into it, it just the crazier you go. And the, it seems like the less, you know, you know, I came I mean, into this through this suspect, Kenny Christensen, just based on two books that I read. I thought, mm-hmm. okay, well, I know all about D.B. Cooper. I've read two books about it, and it's Kenny Christensen. And then I read another book, and I found this internet forum. And then I just completely went into this, whereas now I have no idea who Cooper is. And McCoy McCoy is one of those suspects where I I dismiss him because of his appearance because he doesn't match the physical description but then when you look at all this stuff it it really does make you wonder and one of the things people will say about mccoy people who are actively researching investing in this case is there a possibility that he was involved but wasn't cooper was he the guy on the ground for the first skyjacking um, which which might explain why he was in Las Vegas. So is there is there more to this that we don't know? I I think that's a really interesting Avenue that it's possible that McCoy was involved at some level in the first one because the two are so similar, they're only a few months apart mm-hmm. but we can't seem to match McCoy to the physical description. Or really put him on the plane. So what if he, what if McCoy was there to pick up a guy on the ground?
1: I, it's a theory that would seem implausible the day after the DB Cooper hijacking, and yet all these decades later, as we reach for information and we realize that 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 the correct version of events has eluded us, you, you have to consider. You have to consider that. That point of view, you know that that possibility. So you know you may be right. Yeah, and and people
0: will argue that Cooper had no idea where he was landing. Well, McCoy landed within what three and a half miles of his house.
1: I, I mean, om, in the black of night, almost exactly where he wanted, without any injury at all. And and so yes, apparently it's much easier to hijack a plane and jump out and parachute away than people think it is. <laughs> <laughs> At least it is 727. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it is, it is interesting how easily McCoy executed that.
0: Yeah. And some of the improvements he made over the first one uh, gave a lot more specific flight instructions. When he asked for the chutes this time, he assumed they were going to put trackers in him and then threw them out brilliantly and had his own chute on board. Uh-huh. So they were, Searching for those other parachutes.
1: You know, some of the communications McCoy had with the stewardesses or, or, or the flight crew bore similarities to the communications that they were in the Cooper case. Apparently the notes weren't the same that were being passed around, but all of these things are, are things that I haven't explored entirely, but, but somebody ought to pay a little better attention to somewhere. And hopefully the FBI eventually releases more information. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what, what time holds or what, you know, what we'll see in time. But there, there is more information out there.
0: What will it take to solve this case, Steve?
1: I, I wish I could solve it. I wish I could tell you right now that I have some insight beyond what I've just given you that, that will solve it. And I can't think of anything other than perhaps researching these angles that I've mentioned that I think need further research and, and the hope that the suspect eventually shows up You know, if D.B. Cooper's still alive, or Dan Cooper, whoever he was, I mean, he'd, he'd be getting old, but he wouldn't necessarily be dead yet. And I think that given just the infamy of what he's done, he would leave some proof when he dies that it was him, some irrefutable proof. And so if he's alive, I think it's probable that that'll show up at some point. But who knows? Who knows? you know, and I don't know for sure that he is alive. I think it's more likely than not that he is.
0: My biggest fear with this whole case, and I apologize to my audience because I've said this a thousand times, is that the case will get solved, but we don't get to know the details. So we'll find out uh, that, that Tim Smith did it, but we don't know any of the details. We, we matched know. his DNA and fingerprints, but we don't know what happened when he landed on the ground, why he did it, or what happened to the money. But we know for sure it was him.
1: Well, I'm going to far, start following your, your information better than I have in the, in the past and seeing if there are any new leads or developments because it, it is interesting. And maybe that'll happen. And it'd be nice to get some more information from the FBI field office in, in Washington. I don't know if we will. Do you think the bomb was real? No, and I don't. and McCoy had a had a grenade and gun that were also fake. Was the gun fake or just unloaded? It was just unloaded. You're right. Okay. but even when he broke out of prison, he used a fake gun he, made of dental paste like, yeah, of, like in a cartoon of, right right. And so he seems to have been you know really quite aware of the fact that brandishing a a false or unloaded weapon would still get results. And, um, and I, don't, I don't think the D.B. Cooper bomb was real. But who knows? Who knows?
0: What do you think of the D.B. Cooper sketches? There's two different primary sketches and they look pretty different.
1: I, I wish somebody would get the stewardess who interacted with Cooper on the record. You know, I never interviewed her. So, somebody needs to go interview her and talk to her about this. She yeah, did
0: that History Channel doc in 2016 about Rackstraw.
1: Okay, that's right,
0: and that's the pretty much the only thing she's done in 30 years.
1: Yeah, that's right. And at the time I did the interviews that I've done, it was before she had done that. So I remember being frustrated that she hadn't come out and talked about this more. But I'll have to go. I'll have to go review that.
0: But the, I mean, really, the only thing she has to say in that is that it wasn't Rackstraw. But you're also you know, talking about eyewitness witnessing something that happened 45 years ago.
1: People's memory becomes clouded. You know, people are very susceptible to induced memories. And and hopefully she's not, but it can be difficult to recall what happened. The your recollection of an event can be changed. And you see this as an attorney all the time. Or where, where people testify that something happened some particular way and it and later turns out that they're that, that they they have a completely skewed recollection of what happened and, it, and it's the reason that we have statute of limitations in the law because people's memory and, and evidence just becomes unreliable after time and and so you may be right she may not even still have any anything meaningful to contribute but it would it would still be nice if somebody sat down on her. Do you
0: think the flight path and drop zone are accurate?
1: I think that that is a prime example of something that, that might have a problem. And so, you know, there, there's this belief that Cooper jumped out of the plane at this particular time and that the the search area and the drop zone need to be between here and here. That area steadily increased. Um, but, it's possible that, that that whole situation has been totally misanalyzed. And so I don't, I don't know, but it's, it's something that needs to be looked at more carefully.
0: Why do you think he gave the name Dan Cooper? Do you think it had anything to do with the comic book? The
1: comic book. Yes, I do. I, I think that the similarities between the comic book and his crime are too great for it to have been coincidence. And so does I that agree a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, does that mean that he was in France, where the comic book was being distributed, or something? I, I mean, or Canada, where apparently it had a wider distribution. I, I don't know, but it, it's almost certain that that he was, you know, that this was some sort of tributary alias that he was using to to the comic book.
0: It has to be an homage to that, because he didn't say oh, Daniel yeah. Cooper. He just yeah. said Dan, Dan Cooper.
1: Dan Cooper. You're right. And so he was somehow aware of it, you know, and, and and it's interesting that that comic book exists. There's certainly some kind of relevance there, but I don't know where it takes you. I don't know where it takes you. I know people are considering that, that carefully. And so there are people who are looking at that angle. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I don't know where, what can be discovered there. Steve,
0: why do you think so many people have confessed to this crime?
1: People confess to, to every major crime, and particularly where there's some sort of heroic... Um, Cache. Idea, yeah, that's involved. And so, people, you know, I, I remember asking, well, I can't remember which FBI agent it was, but one of the FBI agents involved, they actually found Cooper if they would treat him any differently because he's attained such a celebrity status as if he were just a common criminal.
0: Great question.
1: Yeah, because in the eyes of the FBI, he's just a common, he's a criminal. In the eyes of the populace, you know, the large, the population at large, he's someone who stuck it to the man. You know, he's, he's some sort of Robin Hood, like a hero figure. And the FBI agent said that they would not treat him any differently, that they would treat him exactly the same as they would if he had no public recognition, and I think I believe it. I think that's right. I don't think there's any reason for the FBI to be any meaner to him because of all the trouble they've put the, the FBI through, or or to be any kinder to him because of his celebrity status. And so, it, you know, that's a that's a nice answer to get. I do think that he he needs to be held accountable. <laughs> We, get, we we it's lost on all of us sometimes that he, he committed a, a terrible crime i people want to be identified with yeah you know, this heroic legendary you know persona that cooper has and so i just think it's it's expected that you would have a lot of people probably a lot of them insecure who are trying to 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 step into cooper's shoes
0: so, that sounds about right to me. Yeah. As a lawyer, now here's a real tough question. Let's uh-huh. say we uh, we find out it's it's Eric Blue. He's DB Cooper. Um, we've got him. He's 91 years old. Could he be prosecuted for the crime today?
1: You know, I understand that there are statutes of limitations that have not that are not over, and that that he still could be. It's a legal well, question.
0: All I know is that he was. The statute of limitations would have run out, uh, gosh, in 79 or something like that, but they issued a John Doe indictment for the That's, hijacking of that. Yeah, they,
1: They've charged him in absentia. And, and there, there are ways of getting around the statute of limitations sometimes by you using charges, you shouldn't, you shouldn't probably be using. And, and you're right about that. And I knew that, and I'm, I'm sorry that some of these details slipped my mind, but, um, if he's very elderly and he's infirm and he hasn't committed any crimes in the many decades since, I feel like, uh, he, he does deserve a break (laughs) and the law does does give people that, uh, I mean, judges do try to go out of their way to be lenient on elderly, uh, defendants, in my opinion, not always. It
0: would look kind of bad to be, putting a 91 year old dude in prison for any amount of time. Cause that's the rest of his life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there are other crimes where law enforcement faces those same types of questions in, uh, you know, there were, uh, there, there are some possible escapees from Alcatraz that may still be alive out there. I had been- a
0: gentleman on my show who theorized what? that Frank Morris was DB Cooper.
1: Oh, is that right? <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> And, you know, the FBI gets letters from these people supposed, supposedly from time to time asking for leniency if they turn themselves in. And and I think it's the, the policy of the FBI that they don't agree to those types of things. And so I think if Cooper showed up, it could prove he was Cooper and offered to do that in exchange for leniency, that that, that request would not be granted. I think it's a matter of public policy. They don't do that. And uh you know, you even have the same type of situation with Roman Polanski, you know, this fugitive from justice director, Hollywood star living in Europe, who has who kind of through back channels, asked law enforcement for leniency if he were returned to, to return to the United States, and they, they won't do it. And, and I think that that's the right decision. I don't think you go easy on somebody because they're a celebrity. In in, sentencing and and charging decisions, so that's just just my opinion.
0: Steve, why don't you think this story gets the attention it deserves? Both Cooper and McCoy, really. I mean, because McCoy's story, whether or not he is Cooper, is
1: is incredible. You know, you're right. I think Cooper does get the attention. I don't think McCoy does, and I don't know why. But I, I just. There are a few crimes out there that I, I cannot explain why they don't get more attention. And I mentioned Mark Hoffman, Murders. Uh, I don't know why there, there aren't movies about that everywhere. I mentioned uh, McCoy's another example. Um, of course, the, the book by Bernie Rhodes and Russell Callum, The Real McCoy, actually had the movie rights option. And the court quashed those the sale of those rights. And so with respect to McCoy, it's possible that court intervention has prevented a movie from being made. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, And this is off subject, but I have been involved. I, I, I've been helping. He, he just died a few months ago. Greg Bemis, the owner of the salvage rights of the Lusitania, which is the ocean liner that was sunk that brought the ocean into World War One. Um, I was in Ireland with a meeting with the minister, culture and heritage about exploring that wreck. And it's unrelated to the Cooper hijacking, but it's just another example of a, a historical occurrence that is not that does not get attention. And and I cannot explain why there's not a movie that's been made about the Lusitania or why nobody knows anything about that. And so there there are these things out there that have yet to be explored by pop culture and entertainment and and need to be.
0: I, I have a, a personal opinion about that. Oh, yeah? What's... Some of these stories, like everyone talks about true crime being so popular. And, you know, there's 900 different podcasts about true crime. Mm-hmm. And it, it has primarily a female audience. But the, the things that I am most fascinated by, I, I'm not a true crime fan really at all, uh, despite the fact I'm doing this show is I really am interested in heists and mysteries like that.
1: Ah, yes.
0: And so like the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, that's a heist. And, Mm -hmm. you know, no one got hurt. So when I'm investigating it personally, I don't really have to feel terrible about some of the things that happened.
1: That's right. It seems
0: like all these true crime shows and documentaries. It's all like murder and rape and torture and kidnapping. But some of these really interesting ones, you know, Mark Hoffman, for example, uh, despite Mm -hmm. blowing himself up, but there isn't any of those things in them. So I don't think that audience is interested. What do you mean? No one was killed or kidnapped or anything like that. I don't care.
1: Yeah, that's a that's an interesting way to to look at it, and I think that's accurate. And and it may be as enlightened as we all think we are, and as expansive as we think the pop culture is, that there's still a lot that we haven't recognized around us, and that that pop culture hasn't gotten into. And so we may be considered ignorant by the standards of 50 years from now. But um, yeah, it's all it's interesting to think about all that.
0: All right, Steve. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Is there anything we have not covered yet?
1: No, but but I'll get you these old interviews that I have. They're not they're not anywhere out there. You'll be the only one that's got them. Maybe I'll post them on YouTube at some point, but I'll get them to you first. And just a few documents that I have like the letter from Judge Winder. And um, I'll send those over to you. And I I appreciate very much you believing that my opinion has enough value that, you, that you'd make a record of the interview and and uh and I appreciate the work that you're doing and and all the information that you're archiving online. Please continue. I mean somebody's got to do it. It's good work. And and well, it's Oh, I appreciate it. Stephen. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Yeah, and I let's keep in touch and I'll be happy to to send you anything else that I discover or that comes my way.
0: Absolutely. If there is um if someone wants to get a hold of you or wants to tell you that you've got everything wrong, is there somewhere they can do that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I'm happy to hear that I got things wrong. Um it, it it's uh my email is Stephen 13 one three at yahoo dot com. And I'll spell it phonetically really quick. It's Sierra Tango Echo Victor Echo November Romeo India November Echo Hotel Alpha Romeo Tango One Three at Yahoo dot com. That was quick. Very impressive. You know your NATO
0: alphabet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it it's been a pleasure, Darren. Keep in touch. Thank you for that. Absolutely. I'll
0: have all that in the show notes, too.
1: Great. That sounds great. Thanks, Steve.
0: Check out Steve's YouTube channel and his website, StephenReinhardt.com. We've got links for all that in the show notes. And if you are in Salt Lake and need an awesome patent attorney, hit him up. Do you know who D.B. Cooper is? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. Instagram at the Cooper Vortex on Twitter at DBCooperPodcast, or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Stephen Reinhardt for taking the time to talk with us about a project he worked on 15 years ago. Thank you to Russell Colbert for agreeing to do this show for 15 more years. I'm Darren Schaefer and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.